glad everybody's here this morning. Um, if you want to, uh, you can go ahead and be turning to Matthew chapter 4. That's the first passage that we're going to uh, read this morning. Is in Matthew chapter 4, and we'll be reading verses 4 through 11. So, last Sunday... Uh, I was the one. I was the one giving the lesson, and um, if you weren't here with us, uh, or if you just kind of forgotten, like I tend to do, uh, we had a lesson on just kind of how the church is really supposed to be the example of love. First, we said, and we studied about in the Word that really Christians are to be examples of love because God is love, and we wear the name of love, which is Christ. And so really, if we are Christians, if we are to be loving and to be examples of love, then really the church should be the example of that, being made up of Christians. Well, this morning, I, I want to look at another thing that I think is important for us, and certainly each one of these relates to the other. So this isn't to say one is isolated from the other, but rather that they, they interplay and they build on one another. So just as the church is the example of love, I want to suggest to you this morning that Jesus and his words suggest that we as the church also need to be an example of discipline. Um, and so certainly that's not isolated from love, and that's not to say one versus the other, but that really there are ways in which we demonstrate one in both uh, as Christians and as the church. And so first of all, we have to kind of ask, what, what is discipline? What are we going to mean by that as we go through this lesson? Merriam-Webster um, Dictionary defines discipline as Training that corrects, molds, or perfects the mental faculties or moral character. Another definition might be punishment. Think about discipline in that way. Kids might be inclined to think about punishment um, when they think of discipline. Um, and then the third definition we might consider is self-control, which is an aspect of that first definition that we were given. Training that corrects, molds, or perfects. Really that reflects self-control. Learning self-control. And so... As we go through this lesson, I really want to focus kind of on that first definition and the last definition. I'm going to leave punishment alone for the most part, because I feel Scripture primarily teaches punishment ultimately is left to the Lord. Um, that's something that He really dictates, and uh, especially when we think of in kind of a final sense, that's certainly the Lord's. Um, and so there are relationships in which maybe punishment is necessary. Maybe we think about a father child or a mother-child relationship, there's a sense in which punishment can be given out, and that's appropriate, but that's not what we're going to be looking at this morning. Um, so primarily we're going to be looking at discipline as it relates to Christians, and then as Christians relate to one another, we have the church. Uh, so the word discipline in the Bible is the same word that is rendered discipline. The root of that is the same word that we have the word disciple. Um, so really to be a disciple is to be one who is disciplined, um, and to have a to be a disciple means you've recognized what we might call a leader or a teacher. Um, some might refer to as maybe even a mentor type. I'm a disciple of this one person, or I'm a learner of this one teacher. It's the idea of a disciple. So to say I'm a disciple is I have taken on the discipline of whoever it is I'm following. And so as Christians, certainly we see the extension in that, right? If we wear the name of Christ, that's to say, Christ is my teacher, I'm going to discipline or disciple myself the way that he would lead me or teach me to be. Okay, so with that said, that's the way we're going to discuss discipline. There's two primary ways, self-control, or you might say self-discipline, 
is going to be the first one we're looking at. And then the second way I would like to suggest that we examine this concept of discipline is maybe corrective discipline, which is to say you've lacked self-control, and so now we try to steer towards self-control. Um, and so with that, um, I think it's an interesting concept because I think the world kind of recognizes on a general level the need for discipline. Um, I mean, there's a lot of relationships that are built purely on discipline. We might think of, um, you know, maybe in times past now, this isn't so frequent, but maybe you think of learning a discipline. Um, we, we might phrase it that way. And so maybe we think of like a blacksmith teaching his apprentice a discipline, and he wears that name of the blacksmith because he's learning from him, much like a disciple would. And so that's a sense in which we could have discipline, and the world recognizes that's a discipline. Taking on a trade or a skill is learning a discipline. I think the world for a long time has really recognized the worthiness of being self-disciplined, of having self-control. In fact, I, I stumbled upon a quotation by a classic Greek philosopher, Plato, who lived even before Jesus ever came onto the scene. And he, he's quoted as having said, For a man to conquer himself is the first and noblest of all victories. And so it's kind of lending the idea to really self-control is kind of the first battle that you learn to fight. Um, is really the, the greatest battle that we can learn to have victory in is one over ourselves, having self-control, not indulging in every whim or fancy that comes our way. And so I think this is a really pertinent thing for us to consider this morning because the world even kind of recognizes it as being a, a valuable thing and has for a long time. And so... I would suggest by starting with Jesus, right? Is this something that Jesus even considered or taught? And I think most of us in this room would say, well, yeah, Jesus taught self-discipline or self-control. One example I might turn to in that is first Matthew chapter 4. Um, we'll read these verses, and I just have a couple quick observations as we go through these, but I would like to read them. Um, if you turn with me there, if you aren't already there. Matthew chapter 4. Um, Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, He will command His angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him again, It's written, You should not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Just a couple quick points that I want to make in this. is uh, Just general observations. In this story, we have Jesus confronted with a couple temptations. And if he didn't exercise any kind of self-discipline or self-control, why wouldn't he do whatever pleased him in this moment? Whatever uh, fancied him in that moment, he should have just indulged in. You know, if it... If he wanted to refute the claims of Jesus, if you are the Son of God, and pride took hold of him and said, of course I'm the Son of God, so I'm going to do exactly what you said, he could have done that. If he wasn't willing or trying to exercise some sort of self-discipline 
to live in a way that he had been taught, and the illusion is in this lesson, in this story, is the Father and his word were guiding him. Um, and really standing as kind of a lesson for us, I think, more than anything. But the idea through this this story really is one of temptation and self-control. Temptation and self-control. And it really stands as a testament to us. When we look at Jesus, he, we might say, you know, as we observe this story, that maybe he overcame his hunger. You know, it would be, well, what's the big deal? You know, like make some stones into bread. If I have the ability to do that, I'm hungry. Um, he kind of overcame that, right? He had some self-control to not do it the way the devil was asking him to do it. Satan was asking him to do it. Uh, you know, the, I already alluded to this, maybe some personal confrontation or challenge from Satan, you know, if you're the son of God, do these things. Well, he had to exercise some self-control not to lash out or fulfill what Satan was trying to prod him to do. Uh, and maybe even riches and glory, kind of that last temptation, you know, I, I will give things to you. I will give you some power or dominion. Uh, you know, we could examine maybe what that means or if that was even Satan's to give but if he didn't have self-control and those are things he really wanted or fancied in that moment why not go for it Um, so I think minimally from this story we're seeing Jesus just exhibiting some sort of self-discipline or self-control to kind of suppress these things as they come up maybe he's super hungry and he kind of suppresses that because he knows or what is true right and so I think Jesus, just in this one story, you know, we could turn to many. I just picked this one to illustrate. He had some self-control when things came his way. He had some self-discipline um, that if I'm honest with it, if I'm presented in this scenario, I'm not sure I would have exactly responded in every situation the same way Jesus did here. And so I think one thing that we also can kind of draw from this, generally speaking, is that Jesus confronts um, temptation or confronts attacks on his self-discipline, and we might say it that way, or self-control, with understanding and with Scripture. Um, I think that's one way we can relate to it, because certainly none of us are the Son of God. We don't have the ability to turn bread from stones. But we do know things God has left for us to know. We do have Scripture to draw from. We have this story of Jesus, right? And so I think that's one way that we see Jesus combating this, one way that we can specifically relate to is that he appeals to a knowledge or to scripture to help him in his self-control and to self-discipline. Um, another instance is really right after this is Matthew chapter 5, really all the way through verse 7. I mean, really the Sermon on the Mount stands as one big testament to self-control, self-discipline. I mean, that's really as you go throughout this, and I, I kind of went through and really roughly broke this into sections and how it might relate to self-control. Um, so self-control in relationships, particularly maybe with brothers in chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. With marriage in verses 31 and 32, having self-control, not just you know leaving, coming into and leaving marriages willy-nilly. With enemies in verses 43 through 48 of chapter 5. Exercising self-control over feelings, maybe with anger in verses 21 and 22 of chapter 5. With lust in 27 through 30. And anxiety in chapter 6, 25 through 34. He exercised, Jesus teaches exercising discipline and self-control over maybe even some of these feelings. With prayers, praying without hypocrisy, having that kind of self-control, not becoming hypocrites in your prayers, chapter 6, 5 through 15. Chapter 7, 7 through 11, um, exercising self-control in your prayers and seeking things of God. 
come and asking. And giving, and again, that's emphasis there, is without hypocrisy. Having self-control, not to be a hypocrite in your giving, and wanting people to see that, chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. And with fasting, again, without hypocrisy. Don't fast just so that other people see you. Have some self-control. Have some discipline. Um, Verses 16 through 18 of chapter 6. And so those are just rough breaks, and I think you could probably go through there and pick out more specifics if you wanted to and how self-control or self-discipline is illustrated throughout those chapters. But on a general level, you could say that not only did Jesus live in a self-disciplined sort of way, but he really taught others, if they were going to be pursuing the kingdom of God, to live self-disciplined lives. And pretty much in most ways that we can think of, in our relationships, with our feelings, in our giving, and in our prayers, all these things. We, had some, we are to have some sort of discipline in. Now certainly we can be disciplined without any root for it. I just institute some discipline in my life because I feel as though it's a good or bad thing. But certainly God demands certain disciplines, and I think that's really the crux of the Sermon on the Mount. You have to be disciplined with these things and in these ways. So to say that Jesus gave us an example and teaching of self-control, I think is pretty obvious. It's pretty, um, we might say blatant. Um, if we're, we're honest about it, we can't escape that, that Jesus lived a life of discipline, self-discipline, and self-control, and that he taught others to do the same if they were pursuing God. And so I want us to move forward a little bit um, to Acts chapter 24. Um, and this is just kind of an addition to this. Acts 24. Really that, before we move on to the church here, I would also like to say that self-control and discipline, if we haven't already been able to to conclude from Jesus' teaching that it's necessary to be a kingdom citizen, as maybe the Gospels would illustrate. And in Acts chapter 24, verse 25, uh, it says, and this is uh, Paul reasoning here, It says, and he reasoned about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment. Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. That's just a little excerpt from this greater story of Paul reasoning with authorities and leaders that he was presented to um, through his, we might say, his uh, trial uh, before he ends up going to Rome. But one of the things that he presented was self-control, we might say self-discipline. It was necessary to be a follower of God that that was something that you had to know and understand and practice. Just as you might need to know about righteousness, just as you might need to understand the coming judgment, you needed to understand self-control. So with that said, um, let's move into kind of this concept for the church. Um, If we as Christians are trying to live for God, then we need to illustrate these sort of concepts in our lives. Um, Galatians chapter 5 uh, was written to, as you might know, the church in Galatia, this, this region and the world at this time. In Galatians chapter 5, we're really dealing with the last paragraph of the chapter, um, verses 16 through 26, uh, but we're just going to read 22 through 25 here. Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. 
against such things. There is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You really could say that all of these illustrate some sort of self-control. To have love is to exercise self-control and not being hateful, right? Um, to be patient is exercising some self-control when you want to be impatient, right? Um, but self-control is listed as one of these qualities. And in fact, right after that, it says in verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That statement in and of itself is a statement of self-control or self-discipline. Um, those who are of Christ have to exercise self-control, and as, and this verse illustrates it, by crucifying the flesh with its passions. There's going to be things that you want to do, things that you desire, that you know are contrary to what God would have you desire, and so you have to exercise self-control. I've heard people say this, and I think it's a fair statement. Um, you know, the sin isn't necessarily desiring or having an impulse for something. It's kind of it's fulfilling that, right? I mean, I could want to lie to Kirby all day long, but as long as I fight that and I have self-control and I remain truthful, then I haven't really done anything wrong, right? Um, and I think that's really what God is asking of us. We're going to have these impulses, just as chapter uh, 5 here, verse 24 says, we have our passions and we have the flesh, but we have self-control. We learn to discipline ourselves the way God would want us to discipline ourselves. Um, so, and there's a lot of passages that continue to illustrate this concept. Um, we, we could turn to 2 Peter 1, um, if you want to. I actually do want to read this quickly. 2 Peter 1. Um, I think we get this idea from passages we've already talked about. I mean, Galatians 5, I think, illustrates everything we need about self-control. But I want to look at this because it phrases it kind of in a way that might be helpful. 2 Peter chapter 1, and we'll read uh, verses 3 through 10 here. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he granted to us his precious and very great promises, that, uh, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these qualities, you'll never fall. All right, so in, in this list of um, things that we're to be kind of putting on and building on in our character, one of the characters uh, characteristics is self-control. That's something that we're to be putting on. Generally saying we exercise self-control, right? And certainly, again, these verses might illuminate for us maybe some specific ways we illustrate uh, or live out self-control. Um, maybe we're steadfast. You know, we work on not being uh, wishy-washy. You know, not being uh, impatient. I think there's a sense in that word of that. 
Um, we also maybe work on brotherly affection. Maybe that's some self-control we have to exercise because maybe some people are not as easily, uh, to, easy to love, right? And we have to work on and have discipline in our brotherly affection. You know, there's a lot of application in these verses that we could sit here and talk about. But the idea is that the Christian puts on self-control. And in that, First Peter or Second Peter 1 tells us this is part of this divine nature that we're to be wearing, that we're to be growing in. And so again, that's just another way to illustrate this concept. Titus chapter 1 verse 8 tells us that leaders of the church, specifically elders, are, are to be self-controlled. Um, so again, are Christians to be self-controlled? Absolutely. You can only imagine how much more so should leaders in the church be self-controlled, right? They should really illustrate that. And Titus takes, uh, Paul writing to Titus takes the time to say they need to be self-controlled people, which makes sense considering where we've already come from in this lesson. Um, so again, elders, even leaders in the church, you can only imagine, especially need to be disciplined in that way. There's other passages, you know, you might turn to 1 Thessalonians 4, James 1, but overall we can see clearly that Christians need to be self-controlled. And the church, being a group of Christians, needs to exercise self-control. And the, the leaders of the church, we might think of the elders, the, the spiritual guides of the church in a lot of ways, need to exercise self-control. Um, so to, to oversell self-control, I, don't, I, I think is really hard to do because we see it emphasized so much. Um, really, you could say being a Christian is an exercise in self-control. Um, it's learning to overcome, as Galatians 5, 24 says, your flesh and your passions and desires and putting on the qualities of God. So with that said, um, let's move on to kind of the next quality of discipline that I wanted to talk about um, and emphasize, and that's kind of this, this corrective discipline. So what I'm going to mean by this as we move through this is we're supposed to be exercising self-control. I think that's clear. So what happens when we fail to do that? And that's kind of, I think, where corrective discipline kind of comes into play. And certainly we can do that for ourselves. I need to correct my actions. I need to rediscipline myself. But certainly I think the scripture, scripture talks about, you know, other people have some place in that as well. And we're going to kind of look at maybe some of the parameters of that uh, in, in life. So the first example I would say of Jesus maybe exercising some corrective discipline would be in Mark chapter 8. Um, Mark chapter 8 is, of course, comes on the heels of Peter's, uh, we might say, confession that you are the Christ. Um, and then he strictly charges them not to tell anybody that Peter, the truth of Peter's confession, right? Right on that, verse 31, beginning in Mark chapter 8, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. All right, so Peter begins to rebuke Jesus because he doesn't agree with what Jesus is saying. Maybe it's because he doesn't like it. We don't really know, but he rebukes Jesus. And it says... It's on the heels of learning that he's going to be taken by the religious leaders and killed and after three days rise again. And so, 
you know, kind of our natural assumption is Jesus or Peter isn't upset with necessarily rising again, but you can imagine maybe him being upset with this concept of Jesus being taken and killed. Certainly Peter's actions around this time indicate that Peter's not going to have any of that. He's going to fight to the death and not let this happen. Whatever the, the circumstances or the reasoning that Peter has, we know that he rebukes Jesus for saying that. Jesus, kind of realizing his, the context in which this rebuke is happening, and it, says it's, it seems that he's especially sensitive that there's other people around, rebukes Peter. And I think this is kind of a form of corrective discipline. I mean, this would have been minimally embarrassing for Peter, right? There's people around seeing this happen. In fact, in the very following verse, verse 34, Jesus calls to the crowd to him with his disciples, and he begins to speak to them. So I get kind of the picture that, yeah, this happens with the disciples, but there's a lot of people in kind of the immediate proximity that Jesus is able to then kind of have them come following this. So maybe there's more people than the disciples that see this kind of happen. Uh, Maybe, maybe not, I don't know. But the point is, minimally, Peter's probably a little bit embarrassed that Jesus rebukes him in this this instance. Um, Now, where I think this is corrective discipline and maybe not just like punishment, right? Like, if Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, that's it. (laughs) That would be kind of embarrassing and kind of punishment, right? Like, oh, okay, you know, I got to hang back for a little while. I need to like tuck my tail and run a little bit. But Jesus doesn't stop there, right? He kind of diagnoses the problem for Peter, which you'd imagine would help Peter correct it, right? And he says, following this, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And so Jesus, yeah, rebukes him. You could say maybe punishes him in that way, but he corrects him. It's not just punishment for punishment's sake or rebuking because he was wrong. You're wrong, the end. But corrects him. We see Jesus illustrate that um, just a few chapters later at the very end of Mark, Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16, beginning in verse 14. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. So Jesus has risen from the dead. None of the disciples, uh, none of the eleven had seen him themselves up to this point. But people had, they had known what Jesus taught. We looked at one instance where he said this was going to happen in Mark chapter 8. Um, but they knew what he taught. They even had people come and say that it had happened. It had come true, but yet they didn't believe it. And so when Jesus finally appears to them, he rebukes them. Um, and it says, for their unbelief, in this passage, in verse uh, 14, but also their hardness of heart. You know, you can imagine this scene as Jesus kind of comes upon it. They're all kind of, it says reclining, right? It says they're reclining uh, in verse uh, 14 there at the table. So he shows up at the table. They're all reclining and eating, kind of relaxed. And not only does he rebuke them for their unbelief, but it's almost like their attitude, right? Their hardness of heart. If they hadn't believed, the witnesses that had come to confirm what Jesus already said was going to happen. Um, And so we see the rebuke, but look at kind of the correction in verse 15. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. So this thing that you haven't believed, which is wrong, right? Now you're going to go help 
we might say it this way. Now you're going to go help other people believe the thing that you were wrong about. <laughs> right? So it's almost like the correction. Um, and so again, I think we see Jesus in a way exercising this kind of this discipline, rebuking, but then correcting. And so um, as Christians, I think it's something we kind of have to be ready for. Um, as James read for us this morning, Hebrews chapter 12 reminds us that if we're claiming to be children of God, we expect, and we should, as, as it said, sons, we should expect the discipline of the Lord. Because passages tell us, like Hebrews 12, that God disciplines those who are his sons. And so I think uh, as Christians, we need to expect these same kinds of things, these moments where maybe we lack some self-control or we forget or we misunderstand. And there has to be a correction that takes place. Um, all right. So with that said... I want to move on to the church again. As a group of people, um, is this true? And certainly I think it is. We could turn to 1 Corinthians 5, and I think this is probably one passage that um, we might know a little, a little more, uh, a little better, I guess, than maybe some others. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, really the whole chapter, it's not a very long chapter at all, but in the church, apparently, there was some sexual immorality occurring according to the very beginning of this, church, uh, this uh, chapter. Verse 1, it says that's occurring. In one specific instance, it says um, a man has his father's wife. And so the implication here is some of the sexual immorality is a man is sleeping with his, it seems like, stepmother. Um, and so one problem about that is this guy's a Christian. And so as a Christian... Um, he should have been exercising self-control, right? Self-discipline. He should have been saying, you know what? Sexual immorality is clearly not something God wants me to live in, so I need to have discipline in that regard. He might have this impulse to sleep with his stepmom, but he should have exercised the discipline. So when the Christian fails to exercise the discipline, and it says in this chapter that he continues to try to be a part of the group who's claiming to be self-controlled as Christians, um, the group has a responsibility towards him to help him remember that he needs to have self-control. And in that instance, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and really the point I'm making is that corrective discipline is needed to keep the group disciplined. And that's illustrated in verse 6. Look at that. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as, as you really are unleavened. For Christ... Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. As a group of Christians, we are all trying our best to exercise discipline in our lives to glorify God, to live the way that He wants us to live. The moment that one of us fails in that, and... And what I mean by fail is not the momentary lapse where we repent and we realize our error, but where we're, we're failing our self-control. But we, need, we make no changes, and we still associate with the group as if we are no different than what everyone else is doing. <clears throat> well, then the group has a responsibility in this passage, it seems, to help that person remember their commitment to the Lord. Remember that you need to exercise self-control, and specifically in this way, with with this sexual immorality that is being pursued. And so I think, as I said a moment ago, that corrective discipline can be used to help remind the group of its discipline. And the illustration is the leaven of the bread. 
You, t- you pull the old leaven from that. But then also to remind the individual, verse 11, that they need to be disciplined, that they need to have self-control. Skip down to verse 11. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler, not even eat with such a one. And the idea, again, is you've committed to controlling yourself and being disciplined in the ways that God has laid out. And if one, if a brother refuses that, then you have a responsibility to them to try to help them or to remind them to pursue that again. And it says the way that we do that in this instance is to withdraw or to reserve um, our association from that person. Again, the idea is just as with, uh, with what Jesus did is it's corrective, right? It's not punishment in the sense of the end, it's over. But it's to remind, again, that that one should be pursuing this discipline of the Lord to be self-controlled, whether they're sexually immoral or, or, uh, sexually immoral, or if they're greedy, or if they're an idolater, or if a reviler or drunkard, whatever way that they're not exercising self-control, we're trying to help them correct that. And this is the way that the Lord has laid out for that. Again, um, you could go to Second Thessalonians chapter three. Second Thessalonians chapter three. Uh, we're getting towards the end of the lesson here. Second Corinthians or Second Thessalonians, sorry. Second Thessalonians chapter three. And we'll begin in verse six. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we are not idle when we were with you, nor do we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, don't grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person have nothing to do with them, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So again, we see corrective discipline being used in this instance with those who are just uh, not willing to work for the things that they needed. Um, it seems maybe the problem in Second Thessalonians was a sense of imminent coming of the Lord, and so maybe some had given up their jobs. But whatever the reason was, some were unwilling to work and said, really had lives of idleness and were being busybodies rather than being busy to work. Um, and provide for themselves. And so uh, what's written here says that they're really not uh, they're really not oh, how do I say this? They're really not even given a meal to eat. They're not even worthy of that meal. And it says rather don't even associate with that person in verse 14. It says, yeah, the one byproduct of not associating with someone it would be kind of like the sense of shame or embarrassment that would come with that. And that's kind of a heavy thing, right? I mean, that's not something I enjoyed embarrassing anybody. Sometimes I do it unintentionally. 
Um, but it's not something I really enjoy, and I don't imagine most people really enjoy embarrassing people. Um, but look at what happens in verse 15. It's not an embarrassment with an evil intent, right? It's not, I'm out here to make this terrible for you. Um, the shame should really come on their end because of the position that they put you in to make, have to make that action. But it says that they are not regarded as an enemy, but warned as a brother. And so again, I see a sense of correction in this. This isn't the end-all, be-all. This isn't punishment for punishment's sakes, but is to remind this one that they would be disciplined, whether it's in 1 Corinthians 5, you know, if they're sexually immoral or a viler or a drunkard or greedy or whatever, or maybe it's that they aren't living up to their responsibility to work and to provide. Um, and so again, we, the church, we see in both of these instances, a group of people is exercising some sort of discipline for correction's sake. Um, and so I think... As we, we think about this, it's, it's certainly um, a difficult topic. To be self-controlled is really hard. We spend our whole lives trying to figure that out, right? We spend our whole lives battling our flesh and our desires and learning how to be more disciplined. I think every day I think of about 10 more ways I could do better, and I probably fulfill a few of those for that day, and then I kind of have to start over the next day, right? How many of us come up with plans on how we're going to utilize every minute of our day and at some point we kind of give out on that right self-control is a hard thing Um, and even more so when we consider what we're up against in a lot of ways you know what comes at us day by day by day i'm not making an excuse for us not to exercise discipline but it is a a daily battle a really a moment by moment battle and we don't take it lightly With that said, as the church, that needs to be a quality that we believe in, that we exercise self-control the way God has taught us to exercise that. And so when we see someone that claims to be a Christian not exercising self-control in a way that God, or discipline in a way that God has told them they need to live out in their lives, we see that the group can take some corrective action to help them remember that commitment. And certainly, um, we are to do that as well. Uh, Revelation chapter 3, the last verse I want us to look at. I just brought this up because I think this reflects a little bit of the responsibility of a group of people. Uh, We saw in 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Thessalonians 3, kind of the the positive response, like if you do this, or this is what you need to do. But in uh, Revelation chapter 3, we kind of, See the other end of that, if you want to turn to verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, you're neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either hot or cold. So, because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. For you say I'm rich, I've prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on the throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Holy Spirit says to the churches. I think that's an encouraging passage because we see kind of a group of people that weren't really exercising the discipline in their lives. If we kind of generalize it, they weren't really exercising the discipline in their lives that they needed to have to be pleasing to God. And God even says, really, you're just kind of warm. I'd rather it be kind of clear one way or the other, right? I'd rather you be really cold or hot. But this lukewarmness isn't really going to result in anything good for you. In fact, God says he wants to spit them out of his mouth, right? And he will. That's the implication in the the statement is that he will unless what? It says in verse um, 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So what do they do? So be zealous and repent. It's almost recommit to the self-discipline and the self-control that maybe you had at one point and repent of the time that you had failed in that. And the, and the implication is that God continues to love and he continues to approve and he disciplines and it says that they'll end up being able to conquer with God just as Jesus conquered and is at the throne. So I think that's encouraging for us. And I think that's a little more relatable in a way because we can kind of see ourselves sometimes becoming cold or lukewarm. Or, But the indication is in those passages is that if we recommit, if we discipline ourselves again to being zealous and repenting, that God will continue to love us and allow us to continue to conquer. Um, but it says that when he loves those, he disciplines and reproves them. So he helps us grow in our self-control. So I think... This is something that I've been thinking about a lot. Uh, It's something that I hope is helpful for us as a group to consider just exercising self-control in your life. Um, I think it's one way we can show our commitment to the Lord is learning to exercise discipline the way He wants it exercised. Um, 